Jonah number two. God Almighty sent Jonah a signed, sealed invitation to be a good news, hand to God presentation of repentance steeped in reconciliation to a people of a great city of a vile and violent nation. Killing, spinning the wheel of degradation, shilling, swindling the poor by exploitation. Three days thick, so sin thick, and it rose, rose, rose all the way to God's own nose. God compassionate, Lord of mercy, of anger slow, of gracious kindness head to toe. He decides to take action before even cattle wind up in traction, lonesomely bemoaning into eternity. I can't get no satisfaction. Sounds like people like me, people like yous, people like us who don't know left from right, who can't even tie our shoes. Preacher Jonah has his own untwisting that's in need. He has hate. Hate-filled, hateful, hate-laden, self-interested creed. What he knew of God had not in him born seed. The unlike so deserved the hammer to fall and remain unfreed. If he saw them shivved, he'd watch them bleed. God wants to give himself to them. In every way, Jonah disagreed. But Jonah knew God will do what God will do. He's tried and true. God, redeemer of the hell enslaved, of the thief and the knave, he himself went black and blue. He gave every last ounce of every last pound to save people like me, people like yous, people like us who have been blessed to see the light, who've got nothing but ourselves to lose. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to K2. My name is Mike. I'm one of the, I'm the director of arts and one of the teachers here. And I just want to say uh, to Mark, we, we, as we're planning this service, uh, we plan on Tuesdays and we said, uh, you know, Mark does some poetry. Um, hey, let's reach out to him to see if he has something he can write. He wrote that poem. We called him on a Tuesday, texted him on a Tuesday, said, hey, could you write something about Jonah? By Wednesday, we had that in our inbox. And I think it's just a great demonstration of the book of, uh, yes of the book of Jonah. 
Well, we're in a series where we're looking at the book of Jonah and trying to understand how that should be impacting our lives and the way we live. Two weeks ago, uh, if you were here, you heard Dave Nelson talking about when God does the unthinkable. Sometimes God will ask us to do things that we don't want to do, we don't feel like doing, we disagree with, we feel like, how could, how could God ask that of me? And uh, how to make sense of that and understand why God would do that. And then uh, last week, Derek talked about when we do the unthinkable. And looking at uh, the life of Jonah, understanding some of the unthinkable things he did during uh, the book. And uh, if you missed either of those weeks, I just encourage you to go back to our website or get the app if you don't have it. You can watch those messages uh, streamed on there. Go to Facebook. They're there as well. So, um, but this week we're continuing and we're going to look at what, in, in the life of Jonah, we're going to look at what does it mean when I miss the point? Right? I, what, what, what happens when I miss the point? And boy, oh boy, did Jonah ever miss the point in this book. And uh, here's the truth for us, that all the time we miss the point. All of the time. It's really straightforward. The reason why we miss it is straightforward. We miss because we're distracted by something else or we're looking at something else that we think is the main point or we're making something that's not the main point the main point. You've heard, you've probably heard this saying, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right. And so what happens for us is sometimes the main thing isn't really the main thing and we get distracted and we miss the point. You probably, maybe you've heard this story of Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. Watson and uh, they decide to go camping and so they head out to their campsite and they set up their tent and everything's ready. It's late at night so they decide to go to bed. And in the middle of the night, Holmes wakes up Watson and says, Watson, look at the stars and tell me what you can deduce. And so Watson looks up at the stars for a minute and kind of pon, you know, pontificates and thinks. And then he says, well, there are millions upon millions of stars in the sky. And if any of these stars, even a few, have planets, then perhaps some of these planets, even one, could be like Earth. And if any of them are like Earth, then there's potentially life elsewhere. And Holmes looks back at him and says, no, you idiot, someone stole our tent. <laughs> so let me show you another example of missing the point. Take a look at this video. It's along the lines of sleuth, sleuthing. Take a look at this. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. Why, I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. <laughs> But how did you know? Madam, as any horticulturist will tell you, one does not plant petunias until May is out. Take her away. Sorry, it's just a matter of observation. The real question is how observant were you? Uh, action. 
Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. Isn't that fascinating? You get distracted by all these other things that are happening, and you miss the main point that the dead guy wasn't even the same guy. So <laughs> kind of missed that one. Well, again, today we're going to be looking at what at the life of Jonah, understanding what happens when I miss the point. And let me just say that one of the greatest points that we miss with regards to this book of the Bible is limiting the story of Jonah to the story of Jonah and the the whale or the great fish. Every time we talk about Jonah, we think that the point of the story is about this whale. And uh, we get stuck in thinking of the book of Jonah. We get stuck trying to figure out, well, it says it was a big fish. What kind of fish could be big enough to swallow a human whole? Or maybe it was a whale and they just called it a big fish. Or how does someone survive in the ocean for three days? Or how does, you know, how does someone survive in a fish's belly for three whales. Oh, what an amazing miracle. And the truth of the matter is that the story isn't really about any of that. Truthfully, the fish plays a very minor supporting role in the greater story that's being told about a really bad man who was asked by God to do something really amazing and he did not want to do it. Today, I want to make sure that we don't miss the point of the power of grace in our lives. That's what the story is about. The power of grace, and I don't want us to miss it. Let me just recap this story a little bit. First, you have Jonah, who's called by God, and he's from, you know, he's the tribe of Israel, and, or the, the people of Israel and Judah. And uh, typically, prophets would be called in Israel and Judah to prophesy to their own people, to go to them and say, hey, there's, here's what you're doing wrong, or God wants you to know this, and call them back into a right relationship with God. Not Jonah, though. He gets a special call. God has a special plan for his life, and he calls Jonah to go away from his people to foreigners who are actually enemies and call them to accountability based on their evil behavior, as he's told, to preach against it. That's sweet. He has to go preach against the behaviors of his enemies. And then we realize Jonah wants no part of this at all, so he runs and he's, the reason he really runs is because he's a miserable, self-absorbed, self-protecting racist who hates the Ninevites with all of his heart. He hates the whole, whole, hates it all. Hates them. You know why? Because they're Ninevites. And he doesn't want God's grace for them, but rather he wants God's retribution for their evil behavior. And to be clear here, Assyria, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and, and the Assyrian people were terrible, terrible people, okay? I'm not trying to paint a good picture of them. They're terrible. As a matter of fact, they, uh, you, you find uh, they're notorious for savagery and warfare, and uh, they burned and looted cities and showed little mercy to their captives. And according to uh, ancient Assyrian records, especially the 7th and the 9th century BC, and uh, also stone carvings discovered by archaeologists, the Assyrian soldiers are shown uh, torturing children, 
blinding warriors, chopping off hands, impaling victims on stakes, and beheading their enemies. Other accounts tell of Assyrians skinning the victims alive. These were, these were bad people. Nahum, which is also in the Old Testament, he's a contemporary of Jonah. In, in uh, his book, chapter 3, he calls Nineveh the city of murder and lies. She's crammed with wealth and is never without victims. Then he goes on in verse 4 to say, Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms. See, these were terrible people, terrible people doing terrible things, and they were an ongoing enemy of Israel. And if anyone deserved hatred, it was them. But I want to talk about four points that Jonah missed, and I want to make sure that we don't miss as we look at this book in the greater context of the story being told. And the first one is this. Missed point number one, God has a call on my life. And we find this in the very first verse of the first chapter. It says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. What was Jonah's call? Well, his call was to go to the city of murder and lies, who is never without victims, the faithless city of deadly charms, the impalers, the hand cutter offers, the decapitators, the skin of alivers, who were Israel's enemy, and do what? Preach against them. Sweet gig. See, this is what Dave talked about two weeks ago. Sometimes God asks us to do the unthinkable. Why, in the name of goodness, would God send Jonah to these terrible people? And we're going to talk about that. And you can begin to understand why Jonah didn't want to go, right? You can, you can understand why he ran from God. This is absolutely terrifying in human terms, Right? But what we actually find out in chapter 4, and Dave's going to talk about this next week a little bit, what we find out in chapter 4 is he's actually not a scared, he's not a scared, <laughs> he's not a scared of them, <laughs> nice, uh, he's not afraid of them, he's actually afraid that God is going to save them, and this is unthinkable to Jonah, because they're terrible people. And he's called by God to take the saving grace of God to a people who needed it desperately. We need to see, you know, but God, they're terrible people. I know that's why they need grace. But they cut people's hands off. I know that's why they need grace. But they kill people. I know that's why they need grace. And God sends him to the very people who are so miserable that they needed a God to save them, and Jonah doesn't want that to happen. And notice this. We miss this all the time. So often we think that God is up in heaven keeping a tally list or a tick list of all the evil things we've done so that one day he can finally zap us for it. But this passage clearly represents the absolute opposite of God's desire, right? His desire wasn't to punish them, but to redeem them and bring them back into right relationship with him and help them understand the saving grace that he offers. See, God is not against us, and God is not mean-spirited trying to hurt us. God has great intentions for us, and he's very patient with us. The problem happens is that when God calls us to do something for others... 
We actually, he puts a call on our life and we go, no, 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 God, I actually have a call for your life. Let me tell you what my call for your life is, God. I'm calling you to obliterate those terrible people because they make my life difficult. I'm calling you to give me a raise at work because I want more money. I'm calling you to, and what's the common denominator? I'm calling you to me, 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 me. And I put my call on God's life because that is totally reasonable and understandable, but I reject the call that God puts on my life as though I know his will. And God is less concerned about me being happy than he is about me being able to care for and love others. It's really interesting, too, to understand that God's call on your life is tied directly to who he made you to be. Again, look at, look at chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Well, just actually the first verse, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Stop right there. Derek talked about this a little bit last week. Jonah, son of Amittai. Let's just, right there. Jonah, in Hebrew, means dove. What is a dove the symbol of? Peace. Son of Amittai, Amittai in the Hebrew means faithfulness. So let me read it a different way. Hey, peacemaker, son of faithfulness, go to the faithless city of death. That was the call that Jonah had because the people in that city needed it. And what we don't realize if we're not careful that even as odd sounding as that call may be, it's not only for the good of those people, it's also for us. You look at the people in history, you know, Moses led his people. It would have been a whole lot easier to just forget the Israelites and do his own thing. As a matter of fact, he did that for 40 years. You look at Jesus who came to what? Save those who were lost, right? Again, all of the people who were following God's will did great things for the good of others. But what ended up happening, it was good for them as well. We don't realize that. And we think that God somehow doesn't like us or has bad intentions for us. And let me just ask you this. Who are you? Who did God make you to be? You know, are you, are you a passionate leader? Are you a salesman, a confidant, a comforter, a friend, a protector, a speaker, whatever it is? The question to ask yourself, are you receiving God's call to use the way he's made you for his glory and for the furtherment of his kingdom and for the good of others? Or are you taking what God has blessed you with and going, but God, I want you to do this for me. My call on you, God, is to do this for me. I need you to do this for me, God. And too often, we're the second one, not the first one. Point number one, God has a call on your life. Don't miss it. The missed point number two is I can't escape God's call. You can run from God's call, but here's the thing. You can't escape it. It's just waiting there for you. And just so you know, this is really just fundamental. I think it's important for us to understand. Every person has at least two calls, and I'm going to categorize. The first call that every single individual has on their life is to know God. That's a call. Know God, receive his grace in your life. That's call number one. Every single person have, has it, and many of us run from that. The second call is, are the specific actions tied to who God created us to be for the good of others. This is the story of Jonah, right? He is 
peacemaker son of faithfulness and God's trying to use his peacemaker son of faithfulness personality to reach the faithless city of death, right? It's tied directly to that. So we, but here, here's what happens that many of us are trying to avoid that calling. We're running from it. And we're fighting being called, uh, being God's messengers of peace to others. But, but here's the thing. We, we try and run away from him or avoid him or go to places where we think God isn't. That's how we try and escape our call. That's what Jonah did, right? He goes as far away from his homeland as he can, thinking God won't be there. But look at what Psalm 139 tells us. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, like in the bottom of the ocean inside of a big fish, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea after a fish spits me out three days later, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So it's like he's saying, even if I get swallowed by a fish for three days in the depths of the ocean, you spit me up in the other side of the world. Not only is God there with the same call, it doesn't say that he's there for us. It says he's there waiting to what? Guide us. That call remains, and God is saying, hey, I'm still here for you. But look what happens. This is really interesting. After he spit on the shore three days later, we have almost, almost the identical verse in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and it says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. You know what's different about this one? One kind of key thing. Chapter 1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Chapter 3 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, he's still peacemaker, but he's lost his title of son of faithfulness because he's proven himself not to be faithful. But in spite of his faithlessness, God's call is still just waiting there going, okay, I got something for you to do. Let's get her done. And what's really happening, what's really interesting is, is, is when we look at what happens when we do try and run from God or we try and avoid the call that God has for us, you see it in Jonah's life, and the parallel is uncanny to how it plays out in our own lives. Look at this. Jonah runs, and he creates carnage in his life, right? Let's just talk about the physical carnage. You, inside the belly of anything for three days, the bile and the stomach acids, guess what? You're a mess. You're bad. You're, it's not good. You don't look good. No one says, hey, you look great. You're losing weight. What's going on? They're like, whoa. He had these physical maladies from that. But not only that, he wasted time and he is still angry. And we see this in our own lives. Our resentment and failure to follow God produces physical ailments in us. Anxiety, anger, frustration, depression, stress, all of these things happen. Because we refuse to live the life we were created to live. And we live outside of that and we make our own solutions. The lack of purpose. And, and, and last week when Derek was talking, he said something that was significantly profound for me to hear. What he said was this, that sin, all sin begins with a wrong belief. You know, we sin, we avoid God, we run away from him because we have faulty thinking. And usually that thinking is a thought 
that my will that I'm trying to impose on God is better than the will he's telling me to live within, right? I think that my plan is better than God's. And even though I know what God is asking me to do or calling me to do, I choose my own way of living. And then you know what happens? Because I'm not listening to him, I'm listening to me. I date it. And maybe I sleep with it. Maybe I move in with it. Eventually I marry it, but when that's not working, I'll divorce it. Maybe I'll cheat on it first, right? Or, or maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's like, you know what? I, this is what I need, and I, no, I'm going to buy it. Even if I can't afford it, I'll charge it. Now I've got this crushing debt I can't live with. And I'm so anxious. Now I, now I smoke it to get rid of the anxiety. Or I swallow it. Or, or, or. This is what happens when we run from God. This is the story of Jonah. It's the story of every single person in this room today as we've refused to follow a call that God puts on our life. And we, too often we get stuck thinking that God's plans are bad for us when all along the best thing for our lives is to follow his plan. The famous passage, Jeremiah 29, 11, what's it say? It says this, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Who wants a hope and a future in here, right? Every single person alive wants hope and the potential promise of a good future. And that's what God's call is. That's what his intention and his promise to us is. He wants to give us that. But when we avoid his call, he's only going to give us the blessing he offers when we live in obedience to what he asks us to do. Anytime we step out of that, we have that other list of things that happen in our lives that are terrible. Miss point number one, God has a call on your life. Miss point number two, I can't escape God's call. Miss point number three, God's grace does not play favorites. Now, we've already established that the Assyrians and the Ninevites in particular were really, really terrible people, right? And here's the truth. If God's salvation in any of our lives, in their lives, is dependent on their kindness, goodness, gentleness, graciousness, good behavior, if, if, if salvation was dependent on any of that, they're doomed. But here's what's worse. So are we. But Ephesians 2 tells us that's not how it works. God's salvation isn't dependent on anything you do. It says you're saved by God's grace through our faith, which means we just accept what he offers us, not by works, none of, nothing we do, and we can't boast about it. But what's cool is he goes on in the next verse to say you're not saved by your works, but you're saved in order to do good works, which means living within the will of God for the good of who? Others. And what happens when we live within that? Not only do others get blessed, but our life gets blessed. The Ninevites believed God, it tells us, in chapter 3, verses 5 and 9, and they turned to God. And then in verse 10 of that same chapter, it says this, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring them the destruction he had threatened. They turn to God, they repent, they accept his grace in their life, and they're saved. Look at Jonah's life juxtaposed to their attitude, right? 
they, they, they hear the message and they're like, whoa, we've got to change. We're going to live differently. We accept your grace, God. Thank you. And Jonah, this whole time, is unable to abide with a God who offers forgiveness and repentance for repentant people. Somehow, though, he believes that God is okay with his racist, horrific attitude where he wants vengeance on other people and he can't forgive them. He doesn't want to do good for them. He doesn't want good to happen to them. Somehow in Jonah's mind, he's okay. he thinks God's okay with that. And he's not. See, we, we, we think thoughts like this. We think thoughts like, well, God can't or won't forgive those people. That, that was too far. Or, or you know the one who did that? No way. Or when, when, some, when, when this happened to me, that person, God cannot forgive them and neither can I. What's even worse is some of us have this thought about ourselves. You know, the, the, the thing I did, God just cannot forgive me. See, again, if this was based on our merit, our good doings, things we did, you're right, but it's not. It's clearly based on God's willing offer to forgive us if we just accept his grace. And what happens is Jonah had, and so do we, a relativistic scale of right and wrong where we all determine on our own what's acceptable before God. And God goes, it doesn't work that way. Just receive my grace in your life and you'll be saved. I love this verse. See, because in Jonah's mind, by the way, in Jonah's mind, why? Because he's, he's him. And we think this too. God knows me. He's good with me. I'm okay. But that, those people, they're bad. Those people, that person. No, God doesn't forgive that. I don't forgive that. See, Jonah's got this same mentality of hatred toward the, the Ninevites as he does in his own idea of who God loves and how to be justified before him. But I'll tell you who really understood this well is the Apostle Paul. Now, he had a bit of a dicey past. He had killed people, and he was persecuting the church, trying to stop it, and then he finds Christ in a crazy experience, and he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. He plants churches all over the Mediterranean Rim where people are finding Christ, and he's empowering leaders to lead the people, and, and amazing things are happening, right? And look what he says in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16. Here is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. By the way, when you're reading 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, you see these series of statements where he says, here's a trustworthy statement. Whenever you read that, here's what he's saying. Take this one to the bank. Count on this. This is true. And here's one of them. He says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am worst. But for that very reason, for what very reason? The reason that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and I'm the worst for that reason. For the reason I'm the worst and he came to save me, I was shown mercy because I didn't have to prove who I was. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. The very point that Paul demonstrates here is, listen, Jesus Christ came to save us because we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't be good enough. And my evil is only an opportunity for his glory to go forward and for me to understand the depths of his grace. You just hear him, yeah, but the Ninevites are so, mm, right, that's why they need me. 
But they kill people. Yes, that's why they need me. They cut off people's hands and torture children. Right, that's why they need me. And the same is true in our life with those areas where like, yeah, but I do this. Right, that's why you need Jesus. So miss point number one, God has a call on your life. Miss point number two, I can't escape God's call. Miss point number three, God does not, God's grace does not play favorites. Miss point number four, God's will is not dependent on me. And this is one of the most fascinating things about this book is that Jonah thinks that God has a call on his life and by him avoiding that call, God's will's not gonna get done. God's not powerful enough to do it without him. Here's a news flash for all of you. You can avoid God's will in your life and keep running from it for the rest of your life. His will will get done. He's not dependent on you. And this is really interesting. You see in chapter four, verse one, and Dave's gonna talk about this next week. I'm really excited for this message next week. Uh, but chapter four, verse one says this, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Well, what became wrong? Well, Jonah is probably, no, definitely the world's best. Let's start there. He's the best ever missionary to exist. Because every single person he runs into, literally every person he runs into accepts God into their life. Remember, he's on the boat. He's trying to hide from them. He's sleeping below. He bumps in there and he's like, I don't know, throw me overboard. They go, okay. They throw him overboard and they go, oh, God, we need you. And they sacrifice for him. They make vows before God. And then he goes to the Ninevites reluctantly. We'll talk about that in just a second. He goes to the Ninevites reluctantly, a city of more than 120,000 people accept the gospel in their life. They accept God into their life. And it's the lamest five-word Hebrew message ever given. He doesn't even want them to receive God, but he gives this message. I, it's so funny, I, I, when I was studying this, I came up with this term for Jonah. He, he's the phobedient prophet, right? And you see this with your kids sometimes. Um, so like uh, with my kids, I'll be like, hey, you, come on, your chores to do the bathroom. I did the bathroom, Dad. Oh, you did? What, what'd you do? I cleaned the bathroom. Oh. Did, did you do the sink? Well, no, I didn't do the sink. Oh. You, toilet? No. Counters? No. Mirrors? No. Tub? No. Floor? No. What did you do? I cleaned the bathroom. Right? What did you actually do? I picked up a towel that was on the floor. See, this is how Jonah is. I'm going to do the very bare minimum to say I still did what you asked me to do. Right? But I don't have any heart behind it. He reluctantly enters the city, delivers the world's worst message ever, and 120,000 plus people turn their ways. They go to fasting, sackcloth and ashes. Even the sheep and the cows are fasting and in sackcloth. I'm like, well, like what's, how does that work? Like a cow's like, hey, other cow. Um, hey, the other day, I'm really sorry I was eating your grass over in your section, and I'm going to stay in my section more. I'm very sad. You can see by my sackcloth. I'm not sure how that works, but what I know is in spite of his terrible message, let me just read this to you. This is how I know he's reluctant. Uh, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 of Jonah says this. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. 
Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and proclaiming, here's this life-changing message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then true to his name, he is peace out on Nineveh. Why? He goes and sits in the city waiting for God to zap it, which doesn't happen. That is what's not right in Jonah's mind, that God is going to save them. See, God is inviting us to do amazing things like Jonah, to be part of revolutionizing people's lives, to be part of helping people find true life and true meaning and live within their true God-given identity. And if we refuse to accept that, that's up to you. The call will remain there, but God's will still gets done just without you. Right? Jonah could not even have joy in the redemption of hundreds of thousands of people finding salvation. Wow. So here's what we want to do this morning as we close out. Invite the band is going to come on up and <clears throat> we're going to just transition into time of musical worship. And here's what I want to do. I just want to invite you to think about something here. Ask yourself this question in your head. What, what is God saying to me? Because what I know about every single person in this room today is this, that all of us are saying no or have said or continue to say no to God on something he's calling us to do. It may be a conversation with my wife. It may be an interaction at work. I don't know what it is. But all of us, every single person in this room at some point is saying, no, I'm not going to do that, God. And many of us are in this room today saying, you know what, I'm not even going to accept your grace in my life. And you will miss out on the opportunity to live the life that God made you to live. And as a result, live in misery, anger, isolation, desperation, lack of purpose, physical ailment, all of that stuff because of your resistance. Relationships will be ruined. So close your eyes and I'm going to pray and I just want you to pray with me. God, you are an amazing God who loves us deeply. You love us enough to call us into unthinkable places for the good of others and the good of ourselves. Your will gets done even when we refuse. But we ask, God, what do you want us to do? What are you saying to me? I just pray that you would reveal in our hearts whatever it is you want every single person to know about your grace and how we're walking away from it and avoiding it. We're skipping out on the life you've called us to. We're missing the glory of who you are and helping others find that. Please reveal it to us, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Lead us. Help us be humble to receive. We ask this in your name. Amen.